We've come to the end of season three. I don't know where the last 11 weeks have gone. I opened with historian William Dalrymple talking about colonization and unconscious bias. I also heard stories from 80-year-old S.P. Ravel and his memories of partition in India in 1947. Jude Hughes talked about not knowing his own identity and learning to fend for himself growing up in an institution in Ireland. Inspirational Kate Nichols talked of others' unconscious biases after she was attacked, while Anna Harrington shared her stories of adoption, racism and white privilege. These are just a few. I do hope you've enjoyed hearing them. I am ending with New Zealander Teramoana Rapley, whose honesty and reflection reinforces why I started this podcast series. Let me introduce Teramoana Rapley. So Teramoana currently works as a senior creative economic advisor for the local government in Cultural and Economic Development Agency in Auckland and New Zealand. She's a stalwart of the music industry as an award-winning singer-songwriter. She stepped into the industry at the age of 14 with politically conscious rap group Upper Hot Posse and was inducted into the country's Music Hall of Fame in 2018. She's worked in Indigenous broadcast for over two decades, gaining over 3,000 production credits as an executive producer and many production roles. Teramwana has also worked in a community action and development space for the last 30 years, with her latest co-created social change initiative focusing on intergenerational and intercultural place-based community building using the arts as the connector. So there's music, there's arts, um, there's there's uh, her own personal history, there's lots of stories that I'm sure the Teramwana is going to share with us. So thank you so very much for sharing your stories of unconscious bias. Thank you, Smita. It's lovely to speak to you. So, I mean, firstly, unconscious bias. What do you understand by those two simple words? Um, so I had to spend a little bit of time thinking about this and, and actually researching it because um, it's something that I've actually experienced most of my life, but I didn't realize the name was called unconscious bias. <laughs> that was the name for it. Mm-hmm. So my understanding is that it's, it's a never-ending um, whole bunch of assumptions it's another word for racism as far as I could tell um, and that uh, the context of which this action of unconscious bias happens is very important it presents a space um, for the action of unconscious bias to actually happen but also for someone to observe it and I'm usually the person that's observing it and I wouldn't I, I wouldn't, um, I don't know if the word's offended. I wouldn't be offended by it because I'm used to this type of behavior um, right. most of my life. So it's actually... It's, it's, uh, there are a couple of things here I, I want to just get, because I really want to hear your stories and what that looks like in terms of most of your life. But you used another mm-hmm. word earlier on when you were talking about the meaning of these two words and you were searching it and you said never-ending. And I thought mm-hmm. that's really, I wanted to just flag that up for the listeners and for myself, because because you're absolutely right. Because so many people around the world might think, oh, okay, unconscious bias, I can reflect, and then that's it, job done, and I will no longer have unconscious biases. But of course that's not true. It's never-ending, because we're human mm. beings, and, and our life experiences will change all the time. And so I thought that was really interesting. But But perhaps you can say, you know, what does this look like then in terms of stories? You know, what kind of experiences have you got in terms of your own unconscious biases? 
my role has actually just changed recently. Um, I'm now the lead strategist for the creative economy. Um, and I actually asked for that title. So prior to that, I was a senior advisor. And the issues that I've been having um, with trying to carry out my work uh, is that the difference between a senior advisor and a lead strategist, the difference between those two titles um, gives more uh, validity to what I can actually bring to the table when I sit at the table. So you, you mentioned um, that I've been involved in music and so primarily people in Aotearoa, New Zealand uh, recognize me as a singer and not as a songwriter and someone that is sort of pretty in on the television set. And that was a very long time ago because I'm almost 50 now. Um, so people have, have this idea of me being this young woman that they love to look at in the 90s. So when I sit at a, uh, a local government table and I'm talking about creative economy, about things that need to change, sometimes the people that I'm dealing with because they know me from this other life, um, they're not listening to me. They're not paying attention to me. They're actually usually singing one of my old songs in their head. And <laughs> I will actually question them and say to them, are you listening to me? And they're like, there'll be a pause. And they go, yeah, 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 we're listening, we're listening. And the meeting will usually end in a selfie. Um, with them, so and 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 this is and I, I'm I'm telling you the story because I, I mentioned that to me my understanding of unconscious bias is never ending, but also there are elements and you know I I believe it's another word for racism, um, and but in the context that I'm talking about when I'm in my day job, um, there the the attitude towards me it's not I don't believe it's a malicious act they're just taken away by something else and they're not actually focusing on what they should be focusing on. And so for me, um, unconscious bias comes in all sorts of levels, if, if that makes sense. Because the other end of that is um, also uh, dealing with people who just, um, I've, I've dealt with colleagues in the same organization that I work for who it doesn't matter what I say to them and they might not know anything about me being a singer. All they can see is that there is a brown woman sitting at the table who didn't go through the normal channels of studying uh, to be an uh, economist, because I'm not. Um, I'm a creative who has a large brain that's able to take in lots of information and spit out that information and make it make sense. And the role that I do, uh, that I have, I have to, it's about impact, but it's not so much about counting outputs. It's about the qualitative um, data that inspires a alternative way of thinking of how we can problem, not problem solve, but pattern shift certain behaviors that may oppress or repress a certain group of people because of the color of their skin or their socioeconomic status. So there are a couple so of things here. Sorry, mm. just, to, just to kind of, uh, because I mean, this is really interesting what, what you're sharing. And there are a couple of things here that I want to just flag up for my own understanding. One, of course, is that because you were famous in the 90s as a singer, the expectation mm. of you is obviously you're a singer. What can you be doing sitting at the table talking serious <laughs> stuff about economics and so on? And it kind of almost reminded me of an interview that I, one of my previous interviews that I've done with Miss England, um, and Miss England also happens to be an NHS doctor. 
And and after she won Miss England, she was sharing a story about how she would go into the hospital to be working. And of course, they're looking at her and thinking, oh, she's just a beauty queen. What does she know about medicine? <laughs> <laughs> so it, I, I totally get what you're saying in terms of, of these stereotypical expectations that we have. And you, of course, had a an extremely successful uh, career as as a singer. And, and you've just changed tack and you want to be seen differently. And that's really hard for the for the people who know you and loved you as a singer. But then you've mm-hmm. got the second part of your story, which is about this brown woman. So now they, nobody knows who Telwana Rapley is as a singer. And there is this lady who's sitting at the table, but they know she's not studied a degree in economics. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. and she happens to be brown and it's a she. And therefore, mm-hmm. what does that look like? And therefore, people's unconscious biases. So there are there are a couple of things here that I found uh, uh, very interesting in terms of how people can have unconscious biases. But I'm going to pause you there, Teramona, if you don't mind, because I mm. want to bring it back to you and your stories, because mm. I know these are your stories because you are at the receiving end. But what about your you and your upbringing? I mean... By, by, you know, the fact that you're a brown woman in New Zealand, may I make an assumption or am I wrong that you're Maori? Okay. I mean, so can you tell us a little bit about what this looks like and, and your well, unconscious biases? Um, so I was on a um, indigenous, so the, the indigenous people of Aotearoa are called Māori. And I'm, my mother is from a group of 15 islands in the Pacific called the Cook Islands. And we also call ourselves Māori because, get this, we were related um, throughout the Pacific. Our languages are the same. We have different dialects throughout the Pacific. And so when I, um, I was born and um, I grew up here in Aotearoa, and part of the reason also why people know me is that I was a television presenter for about uh, eight, eight or nine years. Um, so people saw me on the television set. Um, and I was on a show that was a bilingual show of English and the native language here in Aotearoa, Māori. Like I said, it's a, it's a, a, a different dialect. It's a dialect from what we speak where my mother's from in the Pacific, uh, from the Cook Islands. So people naturally assumed that I was Māori from Aotearoa. Um, and so part of that was, I, you see, for me, my at the time, my um, my partner was Māori. Um, I have I had two children to him, so my children are Māori. And when the opportunity came up to be on this television show, I auditioned for it. I didn't realise that they thought that I was Māori from Aotearoa, and that being on the show for the amount of years that I was, so did the rest of the country. So it was a difference between um, people Māori people from Aotearoa. Uh, thinking that I was Māori and Cook Island Māori people from the Cook Islands where my mum was from um, also thinking that I'm Māori so when I went back to the Cook Islands I just naturally assumed that people realised that I was Cook Island because my mum was from there my name's Tiramon it's not really a common Māori from Māori name from Aotearoa so I just assumed that when I went back people would just be like yeah you're Cook Island but they didn't so one of the things for me when when I think about my own unconscious bias is that I always have um, I always assume that people's intentions are aligned and that their value systems the same as mine and um, and I get that wrong all the time and I've just that's actually been quite a valuable lesson for me recently because I work in the community I, I work around community development and when I get into those spaces I do give a lot of myself and I realise that I needed to sometimes when it gets so hard when you're working with communities that's just not ready. And I work in a, a in a way in a manner that 
um, it's not about a hand uh, out, uh, it's about a hand up. So it's not a hand out, it's a hand up. And, and part of that is also having a level of self-efficacy for the people that I'm working with as well, because we've got to meet and it has to be a partnership. But for a very long time, I just thought if I just keep on giving and giving and giving, it'll come on board. And I realized that at a point last year, actually when my house started um, dropping, that I needed to pull back from it and don't just assume that everyone's going to get on the same page. It may never happen. And so a, a part of that learning was to align myself more with people who are like-minded and then work out a more rounded way, a holistic way for myself to be supported in the spaces when I, I work in community development. So it's a little mm. bit of the assumption thing here. Yeah. And you said about values and the fact mm. that just mm. because you feel that your mom's from the Cook Islands, um, you you know, your partner and the, and the father of your children is Maori. Mm. And therefore, obviously, this is who I am. This is how we're all the same. Uh, and therefore, mm. you, 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 your unconscious bias is that we all have a similar, we all have similar or same values. I find that very powerful, that phrase that you've used. What does that actually mean? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to understand that for my sake in terms of, because you're saying you then became aware, or correct me if I'm wrong, that maybe those values were not as aligned as you thought. So can you expand on that in terms of a story? What does that look like? Oh, absolutely. Um, so for, um, in the local government space um we the unit that i first joined uh had a focus on social innovation so we get a lot of our learnings from the uk from nesta we look worldwide for different ways to deliver um impactful initiatives and programs that are human-centered for the people that we're actually developing for so it's in partnership with them and i assumed that my colleagues that i was working alongside with that um, worked in the community development space, I assume that they're understanding that the reason why we looked at social innovation, the reason why we looked at co-design is that we needed to um, have policies altered or new policies drawn up with faster. And this whole fad of people using the word social innovation and especially in local government got people all excited about human-centered design and stuff. But some, for some people, they say those words and they don't actually know what it means. And I assumed that when they were saying things like that to me, the same, those types of phrases to me, that their value system was the, the same in terms of the urgency of the work that needed to be completed, the importance of the fact that the work needed to be done quickly because of the effect that it had on the people that we were serving. That's the assumption. And so I realized at one point, they have a completely different value system from me. Sometimes it's about them just elevating their own careers and moving forward and to be seen, to be doing this work that might be impactful. But I found um, uh, quite a few times that I was carrying the majority of the work and they were sort of, I guess to, to a light analogy would be, they'd be taking selfies of themselves and going, hey, this is all this great work that I'm doing, and I'll just mm -hmm. be the person in the background with my head down working. <laughs> so I'm smiling to myself when you're saying that, but yes, I, <laughs> I get what you mean, yes. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. a different value system. I think that's really important for all of us, and because it's not just about, um, I, and this is my reaction to what you're saying, it's not just about your 
identity of how you see yourself in terms of Maori. It's actually in so many ways more than that. And I think people all over the world who are listening to your story, it'll resonate with them too. They will go into a workplace with with X ideas of how things need to be to be worked out in terms of their value system and their narrative and their upbringing. And, and then they find that perhaps it doesn't quite match with, with the rest of the team. So there is a, certainly a commonality. But if, we, mm. if you don't mind, I want to come back to, to you and your stories again. Um, and this idea of the fact that you've always seen yourself as a Maori. And are you? I mean, is that now, is that confirmed? Can you tell us a little bit about any other assumptions in your growing up years? <laughs> well, it's a funny story, Smita. Um, uh, when I turned, just before I turned 40, um, I, my mother told me, who's now passed, um, that my biological father was Jamaican. And now the man who brought me up, my father, is Pahia or uh, European. He's from, his ancestors from England. He's a white man. And so I grew up believing that I was half European and half Cook Island. I'm quite... Uh, I'm of a medium dark complexion, I would say. Um, and so when um, the first time I was called a name, and I won't say it, um, pertaining to the way that I looked, uh, was when I was around about seven and I remember coming home because I, I remember talking to this kid going, That's, I'm not that. And this person goes, yes, you are. And they threw a couple of other names at me as well, other children. And when I got home, I told my dad and he had to actually tell me when I was seven years old that I was actually a different complexion. My skin color was a different complexion from his. And even when he put his hand next to my hand, I still remember it. I just kept on thinking, no, our hand, the colors, the skin color is the same. So as a young child, I didn't actually see color. And I'd grown up around, um, we call uh, European people here Pākehā. So I'd grown up around Pākehā people my whole life, like my nan, uh, my cousins, uh, the area that I lived in. and so. I was always comfortable in that space uh, in, in terms of being around Pākehā people because my dad's Pākehā and I assumed that I was Pākehā. Um, and then when I found out that I was Jamaican, I actually had to look in the mirror and look at my face and, and look at myself. And the more I stared at myself in the mirror, then I realised actually I do look Jamaican. And throughout most of my life, because I've, I've, tra- I've travelled around the world with music since I was about uh, 15, um, people have said to me randomly in the most random places. I remember uh, we were in Galway, I think it was, in Ireland, and uh, an African woman came up to me and gave me a sarong and said, this is for you, sister. And then she asked me which part of Africa I was from. I was like, oh, I'm not from Africa. I'm from New Zealand. Um, she was confused. She's like, she doesn't know that she's black. Um, <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't. I didn't realize that I looked black to other people. I didn't even think about it. It wasn't, I'm, I'm sort of, my brain is utilized for other things that I think are more important. And so thinking about how I come across or look to other people or um, people's assumptions, you know, like I mentioned about the meetings that I have and, and it's a struggle trying to get through it. I just focus on what I have to do. And so the the whole question around um, the way that I looked wasn't really, it wasn't part of any part of any conversation that was happening in my head while I was going through these different things. And so these, while these people would look at me and go, oh, she's so pretty. That's not how I saw myself because I'm a tomboy. I don't, I I would never sit in front of the mirror and and did my face because I don't wear makeup. You know, I was like a wear a cap, a sweatshirt, 
tracksuit pants and a sneakers. That was me. And so I didn't realize that's how people saw me until I, um, a documentary was done on me about seven years ago, I think it was. And these people were being interviewed interviewed, and they were talking about me in this light. And, and that took me, uh, took, I had to take a step back and just go, what? And so I had to watch the documentary a few times because this was the first time that I'd actually seen people talk about me and what they thought of me. And these were people that I knew as well, uh, people I would consider my peers. And so this whole... Um, the space that I don't um, allow to be occupied within my brain, really, because I, I just didn't think it was important. I had to actually start paying attention to it. On top of that, with learning about my Jamaican side, um, you know, I just, I found my siblings, I found my father, um, and it's been a journey in itself. We're all in different countries. And, um, I, I, apart from the fact that I can't get with them, I can't physically be with them, and my father has passed, I don't really have any other connections to Jamaica except for my siblings who live in America and Australia and the Philippines. Um, trying to get a, a deeper understanding of what actually that means. Like I can say to people, I'm part Jamaican and part Cook Islands, but for me, the the depth and understanding of what that actually means hasn't actually hit me yet and I think that the more that I learn about my family where I come from will help set me in a better seed to um to to it's not like I, I carry it and I'm ashamed of anything but I know that I'm in a learning space and so um I'm still learning about who I am in, in that space at, at uh 48 I'm still learning these things and you only knew at the age of 40 is what you said yes yeah, yeah. So it's only for been 18 years, which given. is nothing. No, no, that's right. Yeah, because for some people, it's a given that they know who they are. But I've grown up in such a, um, uh, what would you call it, a bubble and squeak sort of way. <laughs> Just everything's sort of been thrown in and um, and then I've had to decipher it. And, and both my uh, Jamaican father and my biological father and my Cook Island mother have passed now. And I have my siblings and then just trying to piece things together. So even though I'm in a, I wouldn't say that I'm in limbo, but I'm, I'm, I'm treading carefully in the space of reclaiming who I actually am. And I'm not, I'm trying my best not to let um, my ego or anything negative in the space, because ego can be good and bad, but I'm trying not to let any of the uh, negative connotations, whatever they may be, to overrun the purpose or the reason why I'm actually trying to find out more about who I am and, you know, well, who my ancestors were. Um, recently, because um, my, my surname is Hendrix, and recently I, I, I started the search again because all this time on my hands and between my job, and um, I found out because uh, I'd been chasing the Hendrix name and there were different stories that I had come across and sort of figured out from a DNA test that I'd done that. Um, our family came from Holland and that they were uh, Iberian, so Spanish, Portuguese, and they had traveled to Holland and they were most likely uh, of a Jewish faith. And so um, it's weird, but I actually was given a Star of David uh, a few years ago um, before, I, uh, actually after I found out and this person was, was um, has been to Jamaica a few times and she just gave it to me and I would wear it. Um, 
but I'm I'm not of any particular uh, faith or uh, secular denomination or anything like that. I'm not necessarily agnostic. I'm more of a Christian hermetics gnostic, and so being able to um, stand up and say I'm Jamaican Cook Island, I say it, but I know that there are reservations in my brain as well because I'm still learning about who I am and. I think about other people who are born in Jamaica, other people who are born in the Cook Islands and, and how they identify themselves as well. And, and, and for us here in the Pacific, our language is very important to connect us to our culture and who we are. It's part and parcel, you can't do one without the other. And for a very long time, uh, I have been avoiding learning my mother's tongue. And that's because it was quite hard for me to learn it here, but now I just have to just pull up my big girl pants and just go out and do it and regardless of people judging me she's that singer who does she think you are I've, I'm, I'm just diving in and doing it because that's the thing for me Smith as well is that I can't just have like a normal uh experience uh if I'm uh if I'm wanting to learn something there are always people that are watching me as soon as people know who I am and, and I'm not trying to play it or anything it's just I, I've left a, a mark on some of these people's lives because I there weren't that many brown faces on television. So when it comes to people seeing me, it's reminiscent of a time that was different for them. Now they've got kids, you know, because these people would have been children as well when they were watching me. And so there's a sort of sense of um, people are watching you all the time, if, if that makes sense. And, and when I go through all these different learnings and even what I post on social media, I always really think about what it is that I'm saying. So when I'm in spaces in public, I'm actually conscious of the space that I'm in and that I can't just sort of, you know, sit on the side and pick my nose or adjust my pantyhose in public because you just never know. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I mean, it's this is so moving, Tarawana, and I'm, and I'm very grateful that you've shared such a personal story with all of us. The fact that at the age of 40, you realise that, what was the phrase you said? I'm kind of paraphrasing that most of us know who we are. And, and then you discover at the age of 40. I mean, think about that. I'm talking to the listeners rather than to you. I'm talking to myself rather than to you. But at the age of 40, suddenly saying, hang on a minute. I always thought I was X. And actually, I'm not that at all. And then alongside that, the fact that you are very highly regarded uh, and people know you and people recognize you. So you have to be so careful when you say anything because you are a person who is uh, what is the modern phrase they use, an influencer, uh, and that when mm. you speak, you might influence other people. So you must be so careful instead of metaphorically picking your nose or, or pulling up your pantyhose. <laughs> it, it, it is so much more than that. Because, But I mean, I, I, for me, what's so moving is this idea about identity uh, and the fact that we all know who we are. Well, many of us know who we are. And yet, somewhere along the line and you're an adult and you're a parent you know you have two mm. children and suddenly it's like hang on actually I'm not that because you had just created your own reality despite the fact that when you were seven or eight years old and, and you were going out of school and children were, were, were being for want of a better word giving you racist abuse um, mm. you weren't allowing that, allowing that to influence you any anyway even when no, you were in Galway and they were saying oh lovely African yeah you are you're thinking, what's wrong with them? I'm just going to get on with my life. <laughs> so it was almost like compartmentalizing, wasn't it? Your unconscious yes, bias, it, when I'm talking about that, is about you're just 
putting yourself into sl- into slots into we all create our own reality and that's exactly mm. what you were doing but at yeah. 40 somehow it just kind of really came on the table and you had to deal with it yes yeah that's that's my entire life meter is compartmentalization because you know there's a i i grew up in quite a a a, a tough household and hence why I left um home at 14 years old to become a rapper and i i left the city that i lived in i moved 600 kilometers away so um my lessons and my own value system the way that i see the world they've actually been self taught i haven't had um i didn't have an adult because i was with a group of male rappers um i didn't have an adult around me who was guiding me in in different ways there were different people that i would see but not really i didn't have a a role model as such to carry me and i remember at a very young age i was called a role model run about 19 because by then I'd been in the industry for 5 years so um people with you know media were spotting me pointing me out as a role model and I I remember saying in an interview saying I'm not a role model I I'm not somebody's role model the that that child's parent that should be their role model this is me as a as a 19 year old and by the uh, by the time I was 20 I'd bought my first house and had my first baby and it, it sunk in even deeper for me as that I'm not my presence in the in 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 the space we talk about as an industry because I'm going I'm swapping between music and and television here Smith so I'm talking about music here now is that I um I didn't write I didn't write conscious politically conscious songs or songs that talked about the skin color of my my first child or I didn't write those things saying I'm going to change the world and this is how I'm going to do it. I wrote those songs because that's the way that I felt. Like everything that I do with my music, it doesn't have a um there's not a disconnection and it's just a focus on how can I market and get my music out. I write my music the way that I feel. It's and that's all it is because my music is an expression of how I feel. It's an extension. It's not a um it's not a uh to put it lightly it's not a commodity to be packaged up though it that could happen eventually but in a way that is more controlled from my side as opposed to an industry infrastructure influencing and saying what i need to do and that's what was happening when i was 19 when role model was put on me as a label and you know they were trying to the the media and 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 the industry infrastructure were trying to craft me into this person uh that they thought that i should be because i was a brown woman i was rapping writing my own songs um i looked pretty i guess so i wasn't too hard on the eye for people and there were issues around rap music back then as well and um because it wasn't that weren't that many people rapping but also there was an influence coming from america and then when the whole gangster rap side of things started happening it was like oh you know we need to teach our babies better and so all those things sort of got lumped on me as a as a young brown woman and and by the time i had my child as a young brown mother i was like actually that's not my job i'm <laughs> my job that's what i do and the person that i'm going to be the pers- best person for is for my son and so i actually have four boys and i have three grandchildren i have two granddaughters wow. and a son and they my my grandchildren and my eldest boy and his uh partner they live in Australia in Melbourne so we haven't seen them for this whole year you know and oh, for me my main tough. focus was with yeah my main focus with me for my boys is that i just wanted to them to be good men and and that was my main focus like people go oh, i really loved it when i saw you singing oh, that's really nice 
you know, and I'm glad that people get that from me and it makes them feel a certain way. And I hope that it's a positive experience for them. But I think that's so, so beautiful, Jermona, what you're saying, because uh, firstly, the point, the fact that you did not have a role model and that you left home at the age of 14 and you, you know, because most of us firstly know our own identity and who we are kind of thing. And the other is, you know, many of us or most of us would say we're the product of our parenting. Um, you know, we've it's how we were brought up from zero to 19 or 20 whenever we leave for, for you know, when we become grown up in inverted commas. Whereas you left home at the age of 14. And so you are not the product. You are the product of your parenting from zero to 14. But you are also, because you were so young, finding your own little compartments, creating your own uh, rules for yourself without having adults because you I mean let's face it a 14 year old is, is from my perspective still a kid uh, traveling mm -hmm. the world rapping being famous and other people having expectations of you so mm -hmm. there's just so much going on there so so Terawana how do you manage I know you've kind of explained it but but for us listeners how do you actually manage your unconscious biases well um the, the one thing that I remember, this is a, a stark moment for me, that I, a stark memory that I remember. We were in Kuala Lumpur in uh, Malaysia and uh, we're driving from a stadium called Shah Alam into Kuala Lumpur. And I remember being on the motorway and there were at least 10 lanes, five going each way, and but there were no lines on the road. And I was so grateful we were in a huge 50-seater um, bus. Because I was like, I couldn't even understand how people were driving. And here in Aotearoa, especially back then and, and throughout the 70s and 80s, and especially when um, Asian people were being uh, seen more prominent, because I grew up in a, in a place called Upper Hut, and I was pretty much the darkest person in the whole town. Maybe one other person in the town centre. Maybe uh, I knew two Samoan people who were also from the Pacific when I grew up. And, and the two other Māori people. So it was very Pākehewi place that we lived in. But we didn't think, oh, we live in a place that's Pākehewi. We just, that's the place that we grew up in. And when I was in Kuala Lumpur, the thing around the, the driving was that back here in Aotearoa, it was like, oh, Asian drivers are terrible. That's the thing that always came up. And, and we grew up thinking that Asian drivers were just Chinese people, nothing else. Because um, that's, that's, that's how our education, education system was here. When I came back and I realized that these different assumptions that I was making that I'd been around, because I'm, I'm not really a judgy person and I don't think I was back then either because I was just quiet. My nickname was Mouse, so I hardly ever said anything, but I did observe a lot. And back then I, I, I thought when I came back to Aotearoa, I was like, man, we just need to be quiet with the dumb things that we say about people that we don't even know about. You know, going to Kuala Lumpur was a complete eye-opener for me. The... Um, the 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 prayer that would happen, the Muslim prayer that would happen throughout the day where everything would just stop. We were like, what is that sound? What's happening? Why has everyone stopped? And we realized that we are so, we're such um, infants in terms of culture and understanding the world that from that point on, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to be quiet and observe everything that I take in and, and not... Um, assumed because you know one of my best friends at, at school was um, I thought she was Chinese she was actually Malay and she told me that she was and so 
for me, I'd grown up with different people and people were just people. So I don't know how I got to a point where in my mind, I, I believe that oh yeah, Asian or Chinese drivers are really bad. For my mother herself and speaking of her own experience, she had her own assumptions about um, the way that people were, you know, specific people from different islands, Pakia people, white people were great and fantastic and Samoans were a different kettle of fish. And so I grew up with these um, things being said to me, but I actually married a Samoan. Um, so <laughs> whatever, whatever was going through her mind and whatever she's saying to me, it didn't attach itself. So, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I'm not a perfect person, but I, I do like to think that I am mindful and I'm aware. And that's how I think I manage my unconscious biases. No, that's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, it's about just being, you said you're, you're quiet, you're, you're silent, you listen, you, and you're mindful. It's rather than just jumping ahead and jumping to conclusions, which is, so much an easier way of managing things. Oh, Taramona, I am so appreciative of your having this conversation with me. Thank you so very much for sharing your stories of unconscious bias. You're very welcome, Sunita. Thank you. This is the final episode of season three. I'm giving it a break for a few weeks to give you all a chance to catch up with some of the episodes you may not have heard. As always, I feel so grateful that I've had the opportunity to hear and make known such inspirational stories from around the world. If you have liked them, please do share, as it is only by sharing that more people can hear these stories. If you would like to recommend speakers, please do reach out via Twitter, Instagram or my website, Tharoor Associates. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back with Season 4 in March. <laughs>